Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Film Club Podcast. In this episode, moderator Stephen Farber speaks about The Old Man and the Gun with writer-director David Lowery and producer Toby Halbrooks. This conversation was recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles during the film's opening weekend. Uh, good evening, everyone. I am uh, a Stephen Farber, and some of you know me from Real Talk, which we do at this theater. So thank you all for coming. And I would like to introduce first the writer and director of the movie, David uh, Lowry. And then we also have the producer, one of the producers of the film, uh, Toby Halbrooks. So thank you for both thank of you. them. Um, David, earlier films, which you may have seen, um, Eight Them Bodies Saints, A Ghost Story, and the reworking of uh, Pete's Dragon. Very eclectic filmography, a group of movies, a couple edgy independent films, more mainstream movies, was that always your plan to try and mix it up like that, or was that an accident? I guess it's kind of an accident, because I never finish a movie and think, okay, I need to do the polar opposite. <laughs> but I do always try to just find things that are different, because I'm always trying to just explore new territory or, or push my own boundaries or whatever it may be. And as a result, um, and I'm also just really curious and like lots of different types of movies. And so as a result, you know, I finish one movie and I just feel like doing something different. And it, you know, I, I'll go from doing an indie film to a Disney movie and I'm like, you know, it's just like, it's a change of pace and it's nice. But at the same time, the stories don't feel that different to me. Like there's okay. something about the stories that all feel very similar and thematically they feel very similar. And the, yeah, so it, they feel more different from the outside looking in than they do for me. Uh-huh, right. So in this case, this is based on a true story, a nonfiction uh, article by David Grant. What intrigued you about that? How did it come to your attention? Um, in one of those rare moments that happen where you just don't really believe it's real, um, I got an email asking if I would read this article because Robert Redford wanted to talk to me about adapting it. Uh-huh. And... Um, <laughs> And so I read the article uh, very excitedly <laughs> and was picturing him all the way through it. It was like an amazing story. It was like a too-good-to-be-true story. David Grant's an amazing journalist. All of his work is great, right. and it's being adapted <laughs> left and right these days. <laughs> but um, the, the thing that really appealed to me about it was getting to tell the story with Bob. Yes, yes. So, I mean, how much of um, what we see on the screen is the way it actually happened, what was, had to be changed or embellished. The spirit of it all is very true to what really happened. The time frames are you know, kind of like compressed, uh-huh. um, but by and large the events are true. A lot of the characters are com- combinations of other characters, like John Hunt is a real guy, but he wasn't the only detective after him. Right. He was the t- one of the detectives in Dallas who was after him, but and Austin, but he, but there were a number of other police officers who were, you know, across the country on that chase as well. And um, and Jewel is technically a real person, but we really, you know, there's not. She married him in real life. She was uh, a very different type of character from what the one we had for Sissy here. Um, 
but you know a lot of the events you know he really did break out of prison all those times right. um when he was talking to david grand the journalist on their last meeting he gave him a list of all the prison breaks <laughs> and the last one was blank just like in the film <laughs> um he did break out of san quentin in a boat he did get arrested after um showing up at his house and teddy green and one of his accomplices was on the porch and all of a sudden all these cops showed up and he never knew if it was an ambush or, or how that happened, but Teddy Green was just sitting there on the front porch like that. And then in the car chase, he did hijack a, a woman and then later discovered that her son was in the back seat and that was real. And then he did go to prison. He did stay in prison that time. He was released somehow. He got released <laughs> um, <laughs> at the age of 79. Maybe because of his age, partly. His age, and also he like, was always like, he was very clever about what he would get put away for. Like he would like do a plea deal so he'd get as little time as possible. Usually he would break out before that time was done. But in this case, this <laughs> final case, he, he waited it out, okay. got out, stayed clean for a little bit, and then went and just robbed four more banks. And, and then he got caught again and was put away for good. Right. Uh, let me ask Toby um, a little about putting together the uh, a production and what were some of the challenges of that. Was it all filmed in uh, uh, Texas and any particular uh, uh, difficulties in uh, getting what you wanted there? No, there was n the difficulties were, Bob made it really easy. Once he, everybody knew he wanted to do the project, all the cast kind of fell right into place. Uh, top choices across the board. Um, it did take place in Texas and all over the Southwest, but we shot it in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> okay. Um, the magic of movies. I yes. mean, totally. It's a wonderful, beautiful place to shoot movies, but we uh, always find clever ways to take movies back to Texas. And we did pickups there, right? Like, yeah, five to ten days of pickups in Texas because we really like to shoot in our home state. Although you did just tell me a story about how you ha had to get Redford uh, to the set in oh Texas gosh. one day. We did, uh, yeah, with that opening scene was in, in Waco, Texas. It's a really famous bank between Dallas and huh. Austin. And we were doing a couple days in Fort Worth and... It's like a two-hour drive, and we were starting at the crack of dawn, and, and we didn't want him to um, have to like make that drive that early. So we were just like, let's see if we can find anyone who will fly him, like someone who owns like a plane or a helicopter. And, and it turns out when you ask people if they want to give Robert Redford a ride in their plane, people will say <laughs> yes. So someone did fly him down there in a helicopter, and it turned out to be, if I remember correctly, the... Uh, same gentleman who did all of the um, aerial photography in The River Runs Through It. So connections run deep, left right, and right. Right, right. So now tell us a little bit about uh, your work with him. You had worked with him before. And um, easy, I mean, he's a big movie star sometimes that can come with baggage. Uh, how did you and he hit it off? I mean, the first time I met him, I was definitely terrified. <laughs> but he is very good at instantly putting you at ease and just making you feel like you've known him for a long time. He turns it all about you. Like, the conversation is instantly just about you, and he gets to know you very quickly. Uh, and it's a really, right. it really helps because you're also just never unaware of the fact that he's like a legend sitting right across <laughs> from you. Um, but the, the first time we worked together um, was on 
uh, Pete's Dragon, which Toby and I co-wrote together. Uh-huh. And we, um, he, we had already been developing this film, and that movie was just ready to go sooner, so we went to make it. But um, thankfully, he was down to, to come play a part in this one first because it really helped uh, get the butterflies out of my stomach in terms of directing him. You know, when you right. show up on set the first day of direct, when you're directing Robert Redford, it's definitely like not all easy going. It's not all fun and games. Like in my mind, I was just like, I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? Like he's going to start giving me notes and just he'll realize I don't know what I'm doing. And but he he really respects the the roles on set. He like he is there to be an actor. When he shows up to act, he's there to act, not to direct. And that was a wonderful thing to learn. That was a wonderful gift to me. And so it really helped put me at ease to know that he had confidence in my ability and didn't need to. He like he honestly, I don't think was paying too much attention to how we were shooting the movie. He wanted to work with me as an actor. Yes. And that was just that was just fantastic. And in his work as an actor, I mean, I know many actors work in in very different ways. I mean. How much do you talk about it beforehand? Do you, uh, do you rehearse with him? Um, do you have to? Do you give him a lot of notes, or is he pretty much uh, doing it all himself? Uh, we talked about it a lot over the years that we developed the screenplay, oh. and and then when we got around to making the movie last year. Um, that we didn't really talk that much about it. By that point, the script was in a good enough shape. We had spent enough time talking about it that by the time he got to set, we could kind of just roll right into it. Right. We had one afternoon of rehearsal with him and Sissy, uh, just so they could get to know each other because they had never met. And so we did about, you know, we ran through that diner scene a couple times and just to kind of like, you know, get the butterflies out again. And right. uh, and it was so good just watching them. I was like, let's stop rehearsing before we like run this uh-huh. into the ground because <laughs> you guys are already so great. Um, but it was really, you know, we, we, there were a couple times where we talked about things on set about whether a character, his character would do this or that, or whether a line would, um, make sense. But, but more often than not, we just sort of rolled right into it and, and it came very naturally to both of us. Right. I mean, that's pretty incredible that these two, uh, veteran actors had not met before, um, or had not made a film together. So were they happy to be working together and hit it off right away? Yeah, I mean, they hit it off instantly. I think they were both surprised that they never worked together. <laughs> and, I, and I was surprised, too. I was like, how come no one ever had this idea before? <laughs> I can't be the first one to think these two will be great in a film together. They're cut from the same cloth. You can tell that they have chemistry just from the two the different movies they've made. You're like, oh, they would totally right. work well together. They both live on ranches. They both grew up around <laughs> horses. They're... They're very similar people, and um, and it was a real luxury and an honor and a joy to just get to watch them act together and to be the first person to cast them. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'll give myself credit for that, I guess, since <laughs> no one else has ever done it. <laughs> right, right. Well, say a little bit about um, uh, the rest of the cast and putting them together. You had uh, I worked with Casey Affleck before, so say a little about him and some of the other people in the movie also. Basically, when I make a movie, I try to bring as many people along that I've worked with before as I can because I like to surround myself with friends and family. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I've been working with Toby for uh, over, like, what, 14 years at this point, something like that, 15 years, and then, and yes, um, worked with Bob twice, and then for Casey, I wrote that part for him so that he could come be a part of it as well, and 
when I work with someone new like Sissy, I instantly think like, okay, now she's part of the family. I got to write another part for her. Um, Danny and Tom were both people, again, who I had never met before, but mm-hmm. always admired. And, and uh, I sure hope I can make more movies with them. <laughs> but that's always the goal is to like find people that you enjoy working with who are, who are wonderful people, who are nice people, who just make it not feel like you're going to work every day. Right. You just want to be surrounded by individuals who you'd want to hang out with even if you weren't making a movie with them. Yes. And, and so the cast for me always represents that. So uh, have you ever had a bad experience um, with an actor that needed a little more effort to uh, pull out the performance? That's not a bad experience. Like sometimes you do. <laughs> sometimes you do need to like figure it out. Sometimes I need to figure it out. You know, sometimes I don't know exactly what I want. Um, other times there are differences of opinion that need to get worked out. And that's just part of the process. And it's a fun part of the process. It's really, that's when it gets collaborative. And, and so I never look at that as a negative thing. It's always just like working together, whether it's with an actor or, or with your cinematographer. Sometimes like me and the DP might have thought of two different shots in our head, or I just don't like the lighting <laughs> and we'll just figure it out together. And, and, it's important to recognize that. Like the beautiful thing about that situation is that you're aware that something's not working and that's half the battle. Like if you were, if you were to like not notice that a performance wasn't working or that a line of dialogue wasn't clicking or that the lighting wasn't quite what you needed for the moment, then you'd wind up with a less satisfactory movie in the long run. So it's great to notice those things and then work with your collaborators to, to get it right on the right level. I feel like I should clarify the face that I made. Um, only minutely it's yeah it's when things aren't going the way that you uh, you've got a whole team of however many people making a movie and like you do your best efforts to do the script and cast all the right parts and then if everybody on the team has the same vision but sometimes like an actor or David will like want to switch things up and the reason we've been working for so long is like I know that he knows what he's doing and then sometimes, like, if an actor or somebody doesn't, it's not exactly the perfect whatever you thought. You have to rework it. I've had to, you have to slow everything down, give them the space to make sure they have the time to, like, get that right. So that's what that was about. Right. I mean, because it's really, really bananas to be able to have to stop a whole production and say, no, we're all on the same team. Right. The movie's going to be better. I mean, it happens on every single movie, but then here we are, you know, it looks, it, he knows what he's doing. What about uh, from the point of view of the uh, studio, any issues where they, I mean, for instance, in this case, did they come in or, or because you had all these good people, they pretty much left you alone, but uh, do sometimes it's possible that they might have some issues or suggestions and you have to take that into account? Did that happen? It's always a conversation. It's like right. definitely. I mean, I've made um, two movies that are not independent now. This one and Pete's Dragon, right. and I don't look at that part of the process as a negative thing. Uh-huh. Again, it's really, I know what movie I want to make, but my my idea is not so restrictive that it can't absorb input from others. Because when a good when a, when there's a good idea, it's a good idea. I'll, uh, so working with Searchlight on this film was terrific. And case in point of studio notes being really great sometimes is the whole opening sequence where he's robbing that bank and walks out before he meets Sissy, that wasn't originally part of the movie. And there was a great suggestion to add a little bit more of a, a little bit more bank robbing at the top of the movie. 
And I was like, great. I had not thought of that for some reason. It makes total sense. <laughs> and uh, How did it start? Before it just that? originally started with him driving and passing Sissy and pulling oh. over. So it was going to start very low-key, and you would never hear him. You'd never really understand that he's a bank robber until he starts right. talking about it. Yeah. And even then, you wouldn't know for sure until you finally see him do it a few scenes later. Um, but in retrospect, it was really great to know right out the gate yes, that yes. something is a foot. Something's amiss with this guy. More than likely he's a bank robber. And it, <laughs> and it picks up the pace at the beginning too in a really fun way. Right. So that was a wonderful, a wonderful note that we got from the studio. So studio notes can be great. Yeah. Um, if there are a few questions from anybody in the audience, uh, yes, in the back there, way in the back. Um, I noticed that uh, one of the uh, characteristics of uh, Robert Redford in this is that he's kind of a rolling stone in a, in a bit, that he, he can't stay in one place for too long. And there was always these lingering threads throughout the entire movie where he kind of drifts a little bit, and you kind of get an idea what his life could be. Now, in the writing process, did you guys ever have fun like creating these separate lives? Because there's the life that he could have had if he had stayed with his kids. There's the one where he's in the bank, and he kind of ponders of what it could be like when there's that couple talking. Yeah. Could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> uh, yes, it was, it was kind of a long question, but... Uh, it's not much of a question, it's more of just having a dialogue. The, 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 the idea is, like, did, in this character who had, for the most part, tunnel vision for his entire life, and yet at the same time had all of these you know, potential lives, these avenues he could have gone down with his family that he had left behind or with, you know, just seeing this opportunity with Sissy's character. And you get all these hints all through the, all the way through of just different things he could do. And, and you start to see his eyes open to that, even though he never goes down those avenues. And I think the question is like, did that ever, was there ever a version where he did make those decisions? Is that correct? There wasn't because the real guy never did, but the real Forrest Tucker did regret. He said that he regretted not taking those opportunities or not being there for the people who loved him, whose hearts he broke, and that he felt, when he was finally imprisoned at the end of his life, he finally was feeling regret about it and remorseful. And I, I'm curious about that, you know, because I also recognize that at the end of his life, when he's in prison, it makes, it's easy to say that, but had he gotten out again, I don't think he would have changed his spots. I think that was who he was. And, and the movie reflects that, rough edges and all. Yeah, yes, here, I'll repeat the question. Uh, you, you, Robert Redford is such an interesting face, wonderful face. And, and you have him, I mean, we're sitting second row, granted, but you have a full screen a lot. Yeah. You have a lot of close-up shots. Was that intentional? Was that the... <clears throat> Did you always want to have a lot of uh, close-ups uh, of Redford? Those things are my favorite thing in the movie. I really like close-ups in general, but especially when, when someone who we've seen you know, our entire lives on the silver screen, and so there's, when you get a close-up of them, it's not just a close-up of them as an actor, and it's not just them as a character, but you get the whole history. And I... I didn't want to run away from that. And I, I felt there was no better way to communicate that without getting too meta about it than just to linger on those close-ups. So for me, the, the movie's reason for existence on a, on a very ephemeral level, and my favorite shot in the movie is when he's driving away from that rainy day bank robbery and he rolls down the window, and he's just driving for about a minute. It's like it's, the shot lasts for about a minute, and the camera's right there in his face. And, 
And we kept that until the film ran out and the whole shots in the movie. And that is the, for me, that's the core of the movie. I really love, I mean, he's got a great face and I love because he's, he does have a great face, but also because of that history that's there. And it's just such a beautiful thing to regard. He has said that this is gonna be his last film as an actor and I hope that he gets a, a lot of recognition for it, whether or not it's, it's the last film ultimately. But I mean, were you conscious of that? Was that sort of hanging over the film and maybe adding to the sense of uh, a responsibility that you had to have him go out on a high note? Well, he had mentioned it in an interview before we started shooting and I just had to not think about it. You know, the script was already <laughs> done. And certainly there's a degree to which it is a spiritual successor to a lot of the m movies and the types of movies that he made his, his career with in the early days. But I'd never wanted this to be an official swan song. It wasn't meant to be that. And I felt that if I was thinking about it while shooting the movie, I would just consciously be right. crafting that every step of the way. Like every time we shot anything, it'd be the last time Robert Redford does this in a movie. <laughs> and I didn't want right. the movie to be weighed down by that. So I never thought about it. But certainly now that he's talking about it more and, and, and seems to be seriously considering retirement, um, although as a fan, I hope he doesn't, um, I definitely, it definitely puts the movie in a different light for yes. me. Yes. Um, yeah, so we're here. I really enjoyed the movie. I found the whole tone of the lighting and the sound uh, really contributed to the pace of the movie. But I was very interested in how the rain played out. I mean, there were like several key scenes. You mentioned one, but I think when he, when he there were several times in the movie when it was raining. And how did that get brought in and how did that come into the script? The, the questions about the, the sound design, but in general, specifically like the rain. rain. And that was something that... Um, when, when Forrest Tucker and the Over the Hill Gang were on the loose in, in Austin, they often were doing robberies in the rain because they'd wear raincoats. And, they, and, the, and John Hunt, uh, this was something he told me, they just referred to them as the rainy day robbers. <laughs> and they did more than one. That was kind of like a motif they had for a little while. And I just liked that. I wanted to bring that into the film. And to be honest, I didn't think about it any more than that. But I love rainy weather. It's like my <laughs> kind of weather. I should really live like in the Pacific Northwest and not in Texas. But, um, but that's where that came from. But the sound design in general, like we really wanted that to feel both, you know, since we didn't shoot most of the movie in Texas, we used the sound design to sort of bring in those sounds right. that I, I know and my, I live in Dallas still, we both do. And we, we did all the sound design with a friend of ours in Dallas. We mixed the whole movie in his garage. And so it, it really does sound like, like Dallas. <laughs> Truth comes out, we mixed the movie in a garage. Yes. So, so there's one scene where you show a live image of Robert Redford as a very young man in the trees. Is that an old shot of Robert Redford or is that movie magic? We were just talking about that. Yes, the scene where you see the young Robert Redford near the end of the movie. It's a fully CG Robert Redford and it costs more than this entire movie. No, the, it's, um, <laughs> it is a clip from a movie he made in 1966 called The Chase, directed by Arthur Penn, starring Marlon Brando and Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, and it's excellent. So if you haven't seen it, go get it, because it's fantastic. Um, and in that sequence, the sequence was always in the script, but I'd always just assume we'd do it with doubles and younger actors, and, and as we were planning it, um, it just felt like the one thing we were missing was him. Mm -hmm. We were just... You know, we were always going to catch up to him at some point in that prison workshop in San Quentin, but I just felt like we needed to see the younger 
Redford as well. And in that movie, he plays, isn't it like a convict who escapes yeah, from prison? Yeah, the first scene one, so he breaks out of prison. And, the, <laughs> yeah, and so for almost the rest of the movie, he's on the run. So, so it's, it was it's a great parallel. What? Thank you. I, I, <laughs> it really, that, that's, it made that whole sequence emotional. Yes. Oh, wait, we had one comment in the front row. Can I make a comment? As a uh, cast to have picked up an actor as Robert Redford, uh, as an old-timer, not because he also is an old-timer, but I believe that whoever cast Robert Redford for that role, you couldn't have had a more perfect man doing the job as far as age, as far as the facial expressions when he was doing the act that he was doing, his walk, and just perfect, perfect choice for that role. Perfectly cast in the role, I think. You we wouldn't have made agree. the movie without him. Thank you. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was thinking about the character, and I found him um, mostly amused. That was my experience of him. He was just amused by what he was doing. I didn't find him particularly deep or motivational. His relationship with Sissy wasn't deep, but his character was, I'm doing life, and I'm kind of amused by this, and I'll keep doing it. I loved it. I loved the film. I wish it could go on for more, but is, am I anywhere on target there? I think you are. I, the, for anyone who didn't hear, the comment was about Forrest as a character and whether or not there was much depth to him, and, and you know, whether he was just like mildly amused at what he was doing or whether he truly had passion for, for his his line of work. And I think that, so two things. I do think that he is, um, there's a depth to him, but it is, it is stunted. And I, I, the way I talked to Bob about it was, this is a guy who went to prison for the first time when he was 13, and he kind of has not advanced since then. And he is essentially an arrested adolescent. Mm -hmm. And for a brief moment, when he's in that relationship with Sissy, he's like able to bring out an adolescent side of her as well, and it's very sweet and charming. But at a certain point, it runs its course, and it becomes it becomes sadder. It's there. He reaches a ceiling that he should have, you know, surpassed a long time ago. And and there's only so much depth he can go because he only has so much life experience. He doesn't have much to give, or then there's not much that he can take in. And so there's that that I found very melancholic. And, and there's only, like, as you see at the end, like, had he been a more, a richer human being, a better human being, he would have stayed with her and grown and become a better person. I, I, I left that scene, I put that scene in where he goes to try to pay her mortgage in there, which doesn't really have that much to do with the plot, but just to, like, show him just kind of starting to maybe think about someone else for the first time ever. Uh -huh. And it doesn't work out, so he just leaves. Right, right. But, but he also, yeah, I mean, he... He didn't. He wasn't spending the money. He didn't have fancy things. You know, he had just a piles of money, and that was always. It was. I always read that scene as like, yeah, maybe he had the money in the car. And if she had said, yeah, he would have just paid it off because he doesn't care about money actually. Right. Yeah, that's not why he's doing yeah. it. Yeah. But he was. He did. I think. I think, on a myopic, and perhaps selfish sense, did love what he was doing. And and at a certain point, when you've been doing it for that long it goes beyond passion and love and, and merges with routine, but at the same time, the mechanical side of it did have a root in, in something that I think he really did love. 
And whether that came from the thrill, the adrenaline, or just the, the joy of being on the wrong side of the law, I can't say, but I'm sure it's some combination of all three. He's living. Yes. The question is about the, the, the audio and the scene transitions and, and how one scene bleeds into the other. And that's something I'm obsessed with. I, I, as an editor, I, I, I rarely like scenes to bump up against each other auditorially. Visually, the clash as much as they can, but I always like the audio to just kind of like carry you from one scene to the next. And I went overboard with this movie. I mean, that was like, I just loved it. I just loved getting that slipstream quality and letting the, the movie, I mean, movies to me are always like bodies of water. And, and sometimes you want like roaring rapids. Sometimes you want a gentle stream, but like they should always just be just moving from one scene to the next. And rarely do you need to hit a dam. Sometimes it's important, but, but rarely is that, is that something I'm interested in. And, and so that was definitely just something I had a lot of fun doing. In that uh, sense, I mean, are there, other films that have influenced you particularly with making this movie that you'd admired that I know some people see a little homage to the sting in one moment in the movie, but other films in terms of style that uh, might have inspired you here. Definitely, I mean, the, the, um, there's some overt nods to, to the Redford classics, but of his movies, the ones I thought about more were Downhill Racer, which is my personal favorite, um, and and then I thought, you know, I'm a big Robert Altman fan, so definitely a lot of those zooms or the times where the camera will just wander yeah. away from the characters uh, comes from there. Um, a really odd one that um, that maybe isn't readily apparent because it was an animated film, but it was Fantastic Mr. Fox. So that was something I thought about a lot. Um, the Wes Anderson movie. And, uh, and the Sugarland Express, the Steel Spielberg movie, that was something that my cinematographer and I looked at a lot, so a lot of the style comes mm -hmm. from that. Um, there's a little Jacques Tati here and there. Um, just a, there. There's a lot. We, and we also would watch, like, we'd go to the theater on the weekends while we were making this, and we would try, we wouldn't go see, we wouldn't watch, like, 70s movies or bank robbing movies. We'd go see whatever was out. <laughs> and so, like, every now and then there'd be, like, a random, like, oh, let's, we just saw Logan last week. Let's put a little... That, that cool thing they did in Logan. I can't remember what it was, but I know we talked about it. <laughs> so, uh, so the two of you, do you have another project um, in the works that you're thinking of uh, partnering on, uh, doing together? We make everything together, and um, we've got two things. We uh, we made Pete's Dragon together, and we've got another Disney movie in the works. Uh -huh. And then, but before that, I think we're gonna go uh, go make something something else, which I can't talk about yet. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, thank you to David and Toby very much for joining thank us Thank you very much. Really thank you for and, coming. And uh, for making such an entertaining movie. Thanks for the great conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theaters Film Club podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear Q&As with talent from new independent films opening at the Landmark. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of these Q&As and more exclusive content. See you next time.